The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 14, continuing our study in the Apostles' Creed. We're almost finished with this series, looking tonight at the phrases, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, affirmations of faith that concern the church. And so we're looking at one of the foremost passages in the New Testament that elucidates for us the doctrine of the church. Follow with me as I read Ephesians 2 at verse 14 and following. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the magnificent marble temple of Artemis or Diana, which in Paul's time stood in the city of Ephesus. And in the inner shrine of this temple, there was a statue of the goddess Artemis or Diana. Antipater of Sidon, who compiled the list of the seven ancient wonders, described the finished temple. He says, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alphaeus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids of Egypt, and the vast tomb of Mausoleus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, these are the seven wonders of the world. This is the last one. When I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. And now that temple is in ruins. Built in 550 B.C., 
about 377 feet long and 151 feet wide, supposedly the first Greek temple built of marble in the ancient world. At the same time, in Paul's day, at the writing of these words of Ephesians 2, there still stood in Jerusalem the Jewish temple, which most of us know a lot more about. The temple built by Herod the Great, the temple in which Jesus preached and taught in his day, and in which the great curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus Christ hung on the cross. Both buildings, the one in Ephesus, the one in Jerusalem, were claimed as the dwelling place of God or a God. Of course, we know one was completely false. Both buildings of great importance in their day both buildings which had to be reckoned with in some way by the Apostle Paul in his life and ministry, and both awesome in the estimate of people of that day and age. But in sharp contrast to these awesome, we might say, physical earthly buildings, in these verses before us, we see a description of the true temple that God is building, the church of God, the dwelling place of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Since the coming of Jesus Christ and his great and final work of redemption, the new temple of God is the people of God who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Of every age, of every time, the church, the holy, Catholic, meaning universal, church. Not an earthly building we know of stone and wood, but a living temple built of living stones, which God himself is building, we're told here, and in which he himself dwells by his Holy Spirit. Isn't it an amazing truth? What do we learn about the church from our text tonight as we consider this great subject. The first thing we see is that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Nothing is more important to a building than its foundation. If the foundation is faulty, the whole building will collapse. Most of you kids know the song about the house built on the sand, and the storm washes it away because it's not built on the rock. We learned that in vacation Bible school when we're young. And we know that a building has to be solidly founded. Its foundation has to be secure. My brother-in-law is building a tornado shelter. It's too expensive to buy one, but he's in the northern Alabama area that seems always to be hit. So he's, he's you know, finding out online how to do this and building a steel tornado shelter. And it has to be, there has to be anchors set deep into the basement slab in order for that not to be sucked out of there when a tornado, whether it's an F3 or an F4 or an F5, might be able to, to, to do that. It has to be deeply founded. Now, when Paul speaks of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's speaking of 
the unique status of New Testament apostles and prophets as vehicles of revelation from God. If you look back to chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, he's talked about that. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That text is the context for what we're seeing in chapter 2. He goes on in chapter 3 to talk more about it. He's basically saying the apostles and prophets of the New Testament era have a similar function to the prophets of the Old Testament time. They are the spokesmen for God. They have this unique status. And what was the long-term result of the ministry of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament age? Well, the main thing was the New Testament, which we now have, and which is the foundation. In other words, Paul is saying that the Bible, Old Testament, I mean, New Testament, and by implication, Old as well. The Word of God is the foundation of the church. The church is founded on the Word of God, and it's a vital principle to keep before us because that principle is under attack from many directions. And in this age, before Jesus Christ comes, it always will be. The foundation of the church being founded on the Word of God is always under attack in some form or another. The the type of attack may slightly change, but it's always under attack. And whenever the church slips off this foundation, she falls into ruin and decay. It's a sad thing to see. From one direction, we we could say the attack comes in uh, the history of the 20th century. is a history and a story of the results of the great slide of the church at the end of the 19th century away from Scripture as the foundation of the church. And so the 20th century unfolded as an age in which the church is suffering the dire results of that move away off the foundation of the Word of God and the great declines that occurred in that century. We hope there are signs of recovery, but still, tremendous damage done to the life and ministry of the church. And still, a dangerous tendency on every side to exalt reason above Scripture, or to exalt experience above Scripture, or to exalt tradition above Scripture, all which may not be. Scripture must reign supreme over reason, over experience, over tradition. And then another direction the assault comes is the presence of many in the church today claiming direct revelation from God, modern apostles or prophets of some kind, when that is not the case. The foundation does not continue to be built. When you build a house, you build the foundation once, and the superstructure rises on that. You don't keep building the foundation. There are no apostles or prophets now. And such modern apostles who claim to have direct words from God in this sense may claim to hold the Bible in some way, but always end up with an emphasis on their own words directly from God, and they cause confusion, and they cause error, 
and they cause a turning away from the teachings of the Bible, and they obscure the gospel. And those of you who have served or gone or, or know about the tremendous growth of the church in other parts of the world, where there is not good grounding with good Bible teachers, pastors, and seminaries, you know the accounts that come back of churches that are bursting the seams but are so misguided and led astray by error by someone claiming to have apostolic authority. It's a great problem in many parts of the world. What's the application of this first point to us? Westminster and every church of God, every local expression of the universal church of God must guard against any of these errors on either side, any assault on the foundation, anything that would shift us from our foundation of being firmly fixed on God's Word, both as a church and as individuals. We must study and know God's Word. We must test all things by God's Word. We must seek to be always reforming because it's easy to shift the foundation to our own judgments, our own thinking whether it's our own walk with Christ, whether it's the church corporately seeking God, we must be very cautious. We, may not, we must not trust ourselves. We must study the Word of God. We must pray for God by His grace and power to keep us faithful and true to that Word. Just two examples about this. One example is an unpopular stance. One is a popular stance. The un, the unpopular one first is it's increasingly unpopular in our culture to stand against sexual immorality in its very various forms. The idea that the church would declare that it's sinful and wrong for people to live together before marriage. That's unpopular. So many young people are doing it. How can the church say that's wrong? How can the Bible say that's wrong? Or In light of the events, the news events of this week, the belief that homosexuality is sinful and that marriage is to be only between a woman and a man, much under attack in our society. And it may become costly for the church to courageously take a stand. Not that we're exalting one sin against another, but everything that the Bible calls sin, we say is sin and wrong, whether it's popular or not in the world. The other example is that the church is called to stand against all racism. And that would be a popular stand in our culture and society. That example comes to my mind because of the relatively recent book that John Piper wrote called Bloodlines, which is about racism and the church, and is the most autobiographical of John Piper's books, talking about growing up in the deep south, talking about the prejudices and racism that was deeply rooted there, even in the Bible-believing church in which he was raised, talking about a wedding that his family went to and had in his church, which his mother and sister had to walk a black woman down the aisle in the face of opposition to let her sit with them in the main part of the sanctuary because blacks were not allowed there. That was his experience, and that wasn't that long ago. Now, that may be a very popular stance to take in our world, but the church can't discriminate whether a view is popular or not 
The church must stay on the foundation, and we must always be reforming according to the Word of God. We cannot pick and choose. And those are just two examples of that. So the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The second insight we gain about the church of God is that the church has Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the center of the foundation. That's the idea here. One commentator mentions in the ancient temple of Jerusalem that Herod the Great built, uh, one of the giant stones was excavated from the southern wall of the temple. That was the not actually a wall of the temple, but one of the foundational walls, which measured almost 39 feet in length. That is a big piece of stone. Can you imagine a, 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 a rock carved that was 39 feet in length? It was part of this foundation. And so you think of this massive foundational structure, and you think of how important it is to have a cornerstone that's solid. But instead of a massive physical stone like that, Scripture is telling us here that the chief cornerstone is Jesus himself, the great cornerstone. He is the center. He holds the whole building together. And if you read through this section, let me just highlight phrases. Uh, Notice how often the phrase is there, in him, in Christ, through him. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man. Verse 16, Reconcile us both to God in one body. That's Christ's. Verse 18. For through him we both have access, Jew and Gentile, through him. Verse 20, which we read. Christ Jesus himself, emphatic, being the cornerstone. Verse 21. In whom? In Christ, the whole structure. Verse 22. In him you also are being built together. It's almost as if that phrase is in about every verse. The apostle continues to stress that and emphasize it. This is one of the great themes of Ephesians. This whole teaching about being in Christ. We're seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. What a tremendous truth for us to be in Christ. Now, often we think about that individually, and we Americans are very individualistic. But here in chapter 2, Paul is applying this corporately, speaking about the temple God is building with these living stones centered in Jesus Christ. This is a radical, a radically new thing. Look at verses 14 through 17, and I want to just give you an idea of how radical these verses would have been in this day, in the day in which Paul wrote. He's talking about, in verse 14, for Christ himself is our peace who has made us both, Gentile and Jew, he's been talking about that, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Probably Paul is talking about the temple wall, which Gentiles were not allowed to go beyond. 
But it symbolizes something greater than that. There's a spiritual significance to that as well. The temple, if you know much about it when it was built and how it was administered in in the time of Christ, there was the temple proper, the holy place and the most holy place. And then there was the court of the priests around that. Priests could be in that part, the elder court. But then there were other courts. There was the court of Israel, one court beyond that, where Israel men could be in. Then beyond that, the court of the women, where Israel women could be. And then beyond that court, there were five steps down to the level down there, five steps, and then there was a five-foot rock wall all around that level, and then there were 14 more steps down. So five steps, wall, 14 more steps, and then that was the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles were allowed to be. See how far they had to go to get into the center of things? And there was an excavation done in 1871 where a sign with an inscription was found, and in part it read that no foreigners were allowed. They think it was a sign that was on that five-foot wall. And then it went on to say, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. (laughs) That's a warning, isn't it? Step over this line and you have only yourself to blame for your death. Probably there were signs like that posted around that. So no wonder in Acts 21, if you read through the book of Acts and you see when the apostle Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple courts, such a mob and a fury resulted from that. That's the context when in verse 14, Paul is saying, Jesus is our peace who has made us Gentile and Jew both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he goes on to talk about the reconciliation. In other words, the most striking distinctive of that day and age. Later in Galatians, Paul talks Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. But the most jarring distinction was Gentile and Jew. And Paul says, Christ has broken it down completely. We're one in him. There is this new unity because of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. What is it that makes both one? It's Jesus Christ. The Holy Catholic Church, why are we able to, 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 why are we able to confess that phrase? that the holy universal church is because it is one. It is united because of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I can't resist an allusion to baseball. I know that you're all Phillies fan here, except for maybe some people in the front row. But what is it that brings fans together? You know, what unifies the fan base? It's faithfulness and devotion to their team. That's the unifying thing. And if you are faithful to your team, you can go to the game, and there may be different races there, different ethnic groups, people of different political persuasion. You're sitting next to them, different ages. And if you're a true fan, all those other differences are meaningless. You're united as one behind the significance of your team. Well, we might even say that when that occurs, Fans are united in worship. 
wouldn't we? I mean, it's, it's akin to worship. Isn't it that in some ways the church is, is outdone by the world in the worship that takes place? But we know and we read here that our unity is based on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We are saved by his grace. We are seeking to follow him alone. We are lifting up our hearts to him in praise, and we are waiting for his return in glory. And so if Jesus is the chief cornerstone, let's ask ourselves two quick questions of application about that. Ask yourself, am I in a living relationship to the cornerstone, to Jesus Christ? Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What a description of the Christian life and the Christian church coming to the living stone, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Have you come to the chief cornerstone and put your trust in him? And then we could also ask, secondly, do people see Jesus Christ when they come into our church? He's the chief cornerstone. That should be the most obvious thing. Sometimes I get to give people a tour if they stop in the church and I walk them down here and it's a wonderful thing and they walk in and ooh and ah and it, it is a glorious physical facility here, isn't it? And I talk, and I'm sure many of you have given tours like this of this if you have friends and talk about the meeting house architecture and how wonderful it is and the 40 windows here that let in light and just how wonderful this building is. But we all know that that's not the main thing. We all know that the main thing is that people would see Jesus Christ exhibited, that they don't see our political views or our organizational strength, but they see Jesus Christ, that he be evident in all that we are and all that we do, the chief cornerstone. Well, the third characteristic of the church in our text is holiness. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple that God is building is holy. We believe in the holy Catholic Church. How is that? Well, fundamentally, that holiness is by virtue of our union with Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 16, He says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That holiness comes by the reconciliation of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing truth. Doesn't it show the wonderful grace of God that he takes sinners? And chapter 2 began with sinners dead in trespasses and sins. If you read the beginning of it, it's pretty dark. We were dead in our transgressions and our sins. And by the end of chapter 2, sinners saved by grace are being built into a temple. The temple of Diana, made out of marble, was wondered at. And it was thought to be so pure and great and good, but it was just an early edifice. The temple God is building is taking sinners saved by grace and transforming them into something that glorifies God. 
You know, the temple that Solomon built had stones that were worked on, that were carved and cut away from the temple site. There was to be no cutting and no chiseling at the temple site. So they were constructed in that sense and prepared elsewhere and then brought and assembled there, probably signifying something of the holiness of God. So with Christians, we might say, we are broken and disfigured and unclean because of our sin, but Jesus Christ gives us new life and regeneration in him, and he cuts away the penalty and the power and the guilt of sin, and then he puts us as part of his wonderful temple he is building because now we have a new heart. And so this temple is holy because Jesus Christ and what he's done. But there's a secondary sense in the sense of the practical holiness of the church. There's that as well. It's founded on the word of God. It's centered on Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then the church will be growing in practical holiness as well. We might say in Christ-likeness. In fact, this is one of the primary ways that outsiders see Jesus Christ in the church. Yes, in the preached word. Yes, in service and things like this. But often, they don't hear sermons being preached because they don't come in here. They don't listen to our little half-hour program on WDAC. No, they see it in our lives as the church is scattered and dispersed into society. The world sees something of the holiness of God in the holy character of the people of God. Not in a legalism or in merely in an external holiness, but in a holiness that originates in our hearts and is overflowing in changed lives. Philippians, when um, Paul is talking about the church living in an ungodly society, and he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a description of the holiness of the church in an unholy world. Do we cry out for God to make us holy practically? Do we stand in the holiness of Christ? That's where it begins. Do we stand in the holiness that is imparted to us by Christ, our Redeemer, and live that out in our lives? Do we strive to be like Christ? This is what we're called to be in the, in the place where he's put each one of us. Well, the fourth and final characteristic is that the church is the special dwelling place of God on earth. The church is the special dwelling place of God. Verse 22, in Christ, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The heaven and the earth cannot contain our God, but in a special way, God dwells in his church. What a privilege. When the church is assembled, here we are, No one in the community really takes note that much of the fact that Westminster Presbyterian is meeting right now. It's not an earth-shattering thing in that sense. But it is earth-shattering in another way because when we're assembled, there's a special sense in which God is present 
in his people, in his temple, in his church, in a unique way. And it should really fill us with awe. I've always been intrigued by the 1 Corinthians 14 text, when Paul is talking about the administration of gifts and he's correcting them on some things about tongues and speaking in tongues. And near the end of this treatment, he he talks about an outsider, an unbeliever. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not all say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, He is called to account by all. And then I love this final verse of this part. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. There's this sense of the presence of God. I know you've heard my testimony before, but the first Christian Bible study that I went to in college, I can't remember what was being studied or anything. I just knew God is present here. There's something very different about this. The church is still in the process of being built. But what a tremendous truth it is that we have communion with God through Jesus Christ. And we have communion with one another in the Spirit as the temple of God. Well, two applications I would draw. One is this. Since we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. We are one in God's sight, and so we must act like that's true. If this is all true, and we believe it's true, this isn't really new doctrine for most of us. If this is true, we must act like it's true. We have a great duty to live in harmony in the church, to be part of the church, to be grafted into the church, to live in harmony with one another, which often is not too easy to do. We're sinners saved by grace. We rub each other the wrong way. People offend us. We offend them. We have a duty to love one another and so to let the world know that we are members of one spiritual family. An example, I think, of this is what you, what you hear and read and think about Israel and the intractable divisions in the Middle East, in the land of Israel. And you realize that biblically, the only way that progress is going to be made is through the kingdom of God, through the church. I heard a sermon by Rabbi Zacharias the other month about this. And he was talking about this reality when he was a part of a Christian prayer group. And he was in this group, and they were praying, and he suddenly realized that there he was in this group, unified in prayer, and there were people from Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and other countries of the Middle East as well. And Rabbi Zacharias said, here in this microcosm, we see a new unity, and that has to expand, that has to grow. What an example of the superior unity that only Jesus Christ brings in this world. The church is called to powerfully reflect to the world the new society, the new temple that God is building. The other application for you is this. What God is doing in his church is the answer to the isolation of modern society. 
One of the great sorrows that we see in our society is the increased isolation of individuals, anonymity, just being cut off. Here in, in, in a busy area, in New York City itself, densely populated, and yet people isolated so drastically. In our Western culture, it's increasingly the experience of people to live behind their walls. And I'm just not talking about physical walls. I'm talking about walls that they've put up to keep everybody else out of their lives, to live cut off from others. There are lots of examples of that. You can probably think of people like that that you know. To be disconnected from community or from any kind of connectedness to others around them. It's the massive epidemic in our world, in the West. And the truth is basically that sin in all of our lives excludes and isolates and estranges us from those around us. It's in our own families, but certainly in in the world around us. And at heart of all of this is that living apart from God results in living apart from others. That's why it's such a beautiful result to see that when somebody comes to Jesus Christ, and this is what Ephesians 2 is all about, by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes into this wonderful description of a new society, no longer hiding behind walls, no longer estranged and isolated from everyone around you, even maybe your own spouse. But now, a new unity that Jesus Christ gives. This is the hope of the gospel, restoration with God, and more and more, restoration with others around us because of what Jesus has done. Praise be to God for the holy Catholic Church being built by the blood of the Lamb. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what Jesus is doing, for what he has done, for the new temple, for the new society the one man in which the barrier has been broken down. We just marvel at this, that even though it seems to be happening so slowly and we see the generations go by and we see the church growing around the world, yet there is that muster seed principle at work that the, the smallest seed becomes this giant tree. We see that more and more. We pray that, O oh Lord Jesus, build your church. Use us in some small way. Help us to have a zeal and expectation and a hope and be praying and laboring for the church of Jesus Christ. We pray that it would be dear to us. We pray that we would, by the power of the gospel, step over the walls that still isolate us from our neighbors, from members of our family, from people at our jobs and schools. We pray that we would be more and more like Jesus Christ himself. We pray in his name.